We're continuing our study in the book of Titus, and it is a great privilege to be able to be here tonight and to be able to bring the Word of God to you. Uh, Faithful men have come before me, and they have brought and exegeted the Word magnificently, and I'm just grateful to be a part of this church family, a great to be a part of these men's lives as they have poured into me, and we get to meet each and every week, and it is a joy to be able to talk about this text, and this text is uh, is a wonderful text. In fact, we will not get through this text tonight. I'm just going ahead and, and making that promise. If you know me, you know we're not going to get through it, okay? It is one verse, and oh, it's two verses, and we're not going to get through it all tonight. In fact, we're only going to get part one of the, the first part of the verse tonight. But I think, I'm hoping that you'll be edified tonight through this message. And I hope that you'll see why it is that we're taking it in such slow chunks because it is magnificent. This salutation that Paul has written is a magnificent salutation. Titus chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. We do continue our sermon series series this evening uh, in the book of Titus, uh, and we're continuing again to look at this salutation of this wonderful epistle. Phil, a couple of weeks ago, brought... Uh, he opened us up in, in the book of Titus and he brought us verse one, the first half of verse one, and he brought to us who, uh, who Paul is, who the apostle Paul is. He says, Paul was a slave of Christ, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the book of Titus, Paul, he identifies his relationship to God, feel taught, uh, as being a slave. Uh, bond servant is in most of our, or our servant or bond servant is in most of our Bibles, but it could probably be scratched out and slave be placed there. Uh, property of his master, Yahweh. Paul was in complete dependence, as Phil taught, on his master for sustenance and protection. Paul, he's committed early on in this letter to anchor his ministry, his apostleship, his slaveship in the story of the covenant making and keeping God. Hence why we see the emphasis on God throughout this theological salutation. Look at with me, if you will. Paul says believers, they are the God's elect, that God has promised eternal life. God, our Savior, commanded Paul to take up his ministry and the grace and peace comes to Titus from who? God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Not only does he anchor his ministry in, in, in Yahweh, but he also draws attention to his apostleship in order to establish his authority as one who was called by and serves the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. John, he last week he brought us uh, and he took us through the remainder of verse 1 where Paul is stating uh, the various elements that make up his apostleship and the principles that control his ministry. We, we see Paul write that he is a slave of God and an apostle Jesus Christ. And then he gives the explanation. He says, for what? The faith of those chosen of God. Paul was committed 
to seeing the saving gospel of Jesus Christ go out into the world. He was committed as an apostle to evangelize the world. He, he, he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which he knew would incite faith within those chosen for God, of God by, for salvation. In a nutshell, you could say Paul was devoted to evangelism as priority number one. But John, uh, Paul doesn't stop there. John also taught that Paul was, he, he was, uh, not only evangelized people and seen people come to faith, but he wanted to see people grow in their faith and he was committed to their sanctification. Uh, salvation does not just stop at justification. It, it, your faith has legs. It continues to move. It continues to look like Christ. It, that's our initial faith moving to a greater faith, to a more fuller faith. He, he says, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul is not only committed to evangelism again, but to sanctification. He's committed to seeing God's elect God's chosen people come to a more fuller knowledge of the faith by which they've been brought into. And, and this is the passion of a true pastor. This is a passion of the one who loves his flock, who's devoted to God's people, yearning for the sanctification of God's people. In Galatians, Paul, he writes in four, chapter 4, verse 19, he says this, he says, My little children... For whom I again in the anguish of child for, uh, whom I again in the anguish of child for birth until Christ is formed in you. Paul anguished as if it was childbirth to see that Christ be formed in God's people. He wanted to see their sanctification. This is a heart of a true pastor. Paul, he knows that the gospel of Christ is more than just a fire escape from hell. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is a call to discipleship. It's a, a call to follow Him in submissive obedience, not just a plea to make a decision or pray a prayer or to get out of hell. The, the sinner, it, it, once converted and baptized into Jesus' death, it, it, and it, it causes that person to be converted, that converted sinner to die to sin. And then he is raised to walk in a newness of life. A new creation he's been raised to. For Paul, justification is just the start of the journey. It's not the finish. Paul was committed to seeing God's people edified in the Word of God so that they may pursue holiness. And, and as he wrote in Romans chapter 8, to pursue what they were predestined for in eternity past, and that is to be conformed into the image of Christ. That is who Paul is. Paul has stated that his apostolic ministry goal was to see the salvation of God's people come to fruition and, and also to see not only God's people saved, but to see them grow in their faith, to see their faith come alive, to, to grow in action, action which matches their faith. And this morning, or this evening, uh, we're going to continue looking at this theological rich salutation that Paul has written. As a slave of God, as he was committed to, not only was Paul committed to sharing the gospel, and to edifying the believers, and to discipling them and to seeing them grow. But I want you to look this, this evening, I'm going to say this morning, it's, that's just what's going to happen. But I, I want you to look this evening, and I want you to see something else that Paul was committed to. He was committed to the internal and unchangeable purpose. Paul, this is our first point and only point for today, that Paul was committed to the unchangeable, or the eternal and the unchangeable purpose of God. In verse 2, Look with me. Paul says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word 
in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul, he, he says, in the hope of eternal life, uh, ultimately, he had to sum up Paul's ministry up in one word. You could say that Paul was committed to salvation. Salvation, that which is a promise, a reality, as well as a hope. Salvation is presented in Scripture as, as a past, as a present, and as a future reality for every true believer. Salvation in the past refers to two great acts of God, our justification and our adoption. And you can go one further, and we will today. It is actually rooted in the divine wisdom and counsel of God before the foundation of the world. But these two acts of God, these great acts of God of justification is when you came to faith and uh, saving faith in Christ, when you were redeemed, when you were rescued, in time you were rescued from your sins, from the wrath of God. And then you were adopted into His family. Not only did you receive justification and forgiveness of your sins and justified and made righteous, but you were adopted into His family. The verdict of the last day for this person has been pronounced upon the one who believes in Christ, instantaneously justified. The believer can look forward to the day of judgment knowing that he stands righteous before God and before Christ, in Christ, and, and join heirs to the riches of which Christ has gained for us. Phil, he talked about how salvation, it frees us from the power of guilt of, for sin, which so often seeks to enslave us. And that being justified, you have been enslaved for your whole life. You, those bondages, that chains have been broken. And that was the past for the believer. If you're in Christ, that was your past. But those who are in Christ continue to experience salvation in the present. Salvation is an ongoing so that it is a present reality within the believer as much as it is a past reality. The process, as I've mentioned before and we've taught before in our small groups and such, is called sanctification. It is being set apart for a work is what it means to be sanctified. In sanctification, believers by grace have begun to share in eternal glory. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, are being transformed. That is a present tense, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is Yahweh, it is God, it is by His Spirit that we are transformed into His image. And that is the process of sanctification. It is a daily dying to itself. It is a daily reading of the Bible and being conformed to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit who indwells us at the moment of salvation and begins to affect change within our lives so that we become more and more conformed into the image of holiness modeled within Christ. We move from an initial faith in Christ to a deeper, richer, fuller knowledge of the truth and that in return produces godly fruit. We're actually going to see that throughout this epistle. But Paul, he, he knows that it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with our sanctification and growing in His holiness. The Christian's future consists of the triune God putting the finishing touches upon His saving work of the believer, which has already begun in Christian's present. This is known as glorification. The future tense of salvation. You have justification, sanctification, and now we have glorification. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Paul writes, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. More than just the past and present, salvation points to the future in which we will be saved from the wrath of God, counted righteous before God. The day of judgment, we have no shame to stand before Yahweh. 
As Christians, we are not yet there. We strive for Christ's likeness in our present reality, but we haven't fully possessed it. We don't fully have our redeemed bodies now. We have this fleshly nature that we hold on to. But one day, so we, either we die or we are raptured up with the saints, one day when we're in heaven, we will have our redeemed bodies. We'll be glorified and made like Christ ultimately. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 23 and 25 through 25, and not only this, but also we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We're groaning today. You see it, sin in our lives, sin in this world. It causes us to groan, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, the perseverance, with perseverance we await eagerly for it. Paul says that we have salvation, the greater part which is unrealized, and it is in our perseverance as chosen saints that we eat, wait eagerly for it, having confidence that one day our faith will become sight and all that is bound up in our hope will see that. It will all come to fruition. What joys we have in our salvation presently, they're countless we can count so much of what we have currently in our salvation, but it is no way can compare to what we will have in final glorification. What God has prepared for us when our hope becomes reality, that is eternal hope. And that's, it's Paul, it's what Paul's committed to, to God's people to instill within them this eternal hope that we have in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is what the apostle Paul is committed to. You could say that Paul, he constantly labors in light of eternity. Not only are we saved in hope, as he says in Romans 8, but he says we live and he ministers in that hope as well. Paul's concerns don't relate just to the temporal world or the, uh, any earthly fulfillment. That's felt needs. That's not what Paul is concerned with. Most ministers today are concerned with your felt needs and your prosperity and stuff, but that's not where Paul is headed. Paul is, is, is concerned, he's more importantly concerned to the realm of eternity in the invisible kingdom. He wants to see people grow in Christ's likeness and have their eye upon Christ. Paul is kingdom-minded and, and his apostleship, as 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, is according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was committed to, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. This hope, elpis, is in the Greek, is the hope that pertains to eternal life. This, this eternal life is more than just physical existence. It's a fullness of life that is available right now through Jesus Christ, which ultimately reaches its climax on the other side of the Lord's return. It's eternal salvation. It's an eternal heaven, a, a, a returning of Christ. It's, it's a loosening of the bondage of the unredeemed flesh and fallen flesh, a new glorified body. It's knowing the true Son, Jesus Christ. This is our great eternal hope. It, it's as Romans chapter 6 verse 22 tells us, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. Paul, he speaks of this hope in the context of the gospel within our epistle. He says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, in the context of, of the, the, the gospel, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 7, justified by His grace in order that we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
What is hope? Oftentimes in our day, we, we use the term hope for, to refer to something that may or may not happen. It's a type of wishful thinking. For instance, uh, I hope that I can go home and catch the ending of the football game tonight. Well, that's based on one of two things. If I get out in time and not preach too long, and the game is still on, right? And when I get in, I don't know. I don't control those things. I can't control it. That is a wishful thinking. I, it may or may not happen that I get to check the game out tonight. That's not the hope that the Bible is speaking of. Paul is saying, he's not saying, man, I hope that we have eternal life. I hope that I get to that finish line one day and I, I sure do hope that I can make to heaven. I've, I've heard a lot of Christians or so-called Christians say this in, in, in evangelism as, I hope I'll be there. I hope I'll be in heaven. That's not the hope that Paul is talking about. That's a baseless hope. That's a wishful thinking hope. How can anybody have any guarantee in that hope? That's not biblical hope that Paul's talking about. This uh, biblical hope, eternal hope, is not wishful thinking. It's not a maybe. Scripture views hope as a sure thing. It's a bedrock assurance based on what? On the promises of God. R.C. Sproul, he writes it so well. He says this, Hope is not taking a breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. It is an assurance that God is going to do what He says He will do. And what is it that God has said He's going to do for the believers? Well, for one, He's promised that we as believers will have an eternal, resurrected existence that we will enjoy in heaven, face-to-face, before our holy God as beings who cannot sin because of the redemption our Savior has purchased for us. Amen? That is what He has promised for us as believers. So we can say that our eternal hope, it is a confident anticipation of what will happen in the life of the believer. But what encouragement, think about it, what encouragement this gives to us tonight, to the believer. We are not hopeless creatures as believers. We don't walk around moping and sad and woe is me and I don't have any hope. I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. No, we don't walk like that. We ha- ha- How encouraging it is to have our eyes open and set upon an eternal hope that God, the online God, has set before us and has promised. Having eternal hope, and I, and I believe this is key to the epistle as we get into this. It spurs us on to purity. It spurs us on to be who we've been called to be. Look at the, what the Apostle John writes. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. He says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. There's the justification. And it has not appeared as yet we will build. That's the glorification. One day we'll be like Him. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Glorification because we will see Him just as He is. And look at this. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Our hope, as it is fixed on Christ as it is fixed on the eternal hope and our, uh, our, uh, on the object of our faith, it purifies us. How can it not? Think about it. When you take your eyes off yourself and you take them and put them on Christ, you can't help but be purified. You can't help but be like Him. But that's the hard part. We love ourselves. Paul says something similar to what John says in 1 Timothy 
chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, but having nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, he says, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this that we labor and strive. Here's the, here's, here's the hint of clause. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. This is why we strive so much to be pure. It's because we fixed our hope upon Christ. Not only does this hope, it purifies us, but it gives us great confidence. Not only does hope purify us, but it gives us great confidence. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. He, you don't have to turn, but I'll read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, there's our word again, we use great boldness in our speech. As ministers of God's word, as those who are believers, as preachers, we're all called to be preachers if we're in Christ. We are so confident of the new covenant promise by faith in Jesus Christ that it fills the heart with hope and we can speak freely, concealing nothing, reserving nothing, suspecting nothing, but speaking plainly with full confidence. This hope gives us the full confidence that we need to go on a gospel conversation knowing that God will save those whom He's elected and that who He draws to Him, He will save them. We have this hope. We have full assurance that it will accomplish what it is set out to accomplish. Not only does it give us confidence, but it doesn't put us to shame. This hope does not put us to shame. Second, Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Paul writes, Through whom, that's being Jesus Christ, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character, what does it bring? It brings hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says here in this, this, just this one, these two verses here that we rejoice in our hope of our final salvation, knowing that it will never put us to shame, nor will it disappoint. You, you, you see, you, we don't need to fear that one day we might find out that, that our hope is unreal and that we will be embarrassed by the false confidence we had in it. We, we, we don't ever need to doubt that on the final day when it arrives, that when we stand before God, that, that, that we, we, we should cower down and have shame and be disappointed because it is God who is going to fulfill that hope because it is in Him and who we are saved. He will bring that to fruition. And so we shall not be ashamed as believers. And we shall stand with boldness coming as, God, I have nothing to bring to you, but I know all of Christ and what He has given to me. And He is the one who's made me righteous. And so I stand boldly and affirm Him. And I'm not disappointed because of what He has done. That's what Paul says. And in the same hope, we can also rejoice that in our sufferings, on account of what they produce in us, you can hope in your sufferings as Christians today. You say, man, I am going through a lot. As Christians, all things work for the good of those who love you. Our sufferings, they produce hope in us. As we suffer, what happens? Our faith is tested and it's tried. The impurities, they're removed and we see the Lord keep His promises to us. 
We grow in that certainty that our hope is already providing for us. Additionally, we're convinced that hope will not put us to shame because God has poured out his own love into our hearts. By God's spirit, he convinces us of his love for us and being convinced of his love for us, we love him in return, thereby persevering in our faith. It is a cycle. It's cyclical. The more that we're tried, the more that we're tested, the more that we see God's love and we see His the, the hope there of eternal hope and what happens, it strengthens us and we rely more upon him and his yeses as he's promised we say yes this is what he's done and we continue to hope in him and trust in him it is a cycle of love that God has produced in us and that is persevering faith so Paul's mission you could say it's his role or his commitment as he goes through goes about planting churches here in Crete and 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 and, and throughout the Roman Empire pouring his life into men and women for the sake of Christ's church Here's his goal, is to see that the reality of this hope of eternal life is firmly planted into their minds and hearts so that the Christians will stand firm in their faith and not be ashamed so that they will have complete assurance of their salvation so that they'll be a purified bride for the Savior Jesus Christ so that they may grow in the knowledge of God's love for his people which in return encourages people to love him more in return and by this knowledge we can fully know that we will see him in glory. What a great cycle the Lord has got us in. And Paul is committed to it because he, he has seen it in action. And he knows who God is, the one who does not fail him. But this hope, this eternal hope, this eternal life, it's not something that's conjured up upon the fly. It's not something that was an afterthought of God. It's not plan B or plan C. It's not that when Adam fell, the God had looked at each other and says, Oh, what are we going to do now? What happens now? No, this eternal hope, this is what I want you to see tonight. This eternal purpose of God, you could say it's firmly rooted in God's purposes and His promises. It's founded firmly upon the very character and the integrity of the unlying God. Verse 2, look with me. Verse 2, again, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Do you see that? The hope of eternal life was promised long ages ago. Or as the LSB says, promised from all of eternity. And it's from the non-lying, unable to lie God. Paul says, which God who cannot lie. This is one of the first verses that John actually brought up to us when we were going through Titus and we are looking at it. He's like, then that is interesting to see this in a salutation. It really causes us to, to stand up and what are you talking about? What are you trying to get at, Paul? Why are you saying this in your salutation? We don't see this very often, but this is a theological statement. This is a huge theological statement right here in the salutation in verse 2. Why introduce this now? should come to the Bible reader's mind, right? That's what good hermeneutics do. Well, I believe... Part of it has something to do with the opposing party in Crete. If you remember, when we went through the, our opening introduction of the, of, of the book of Titus, we, we said that in verse 12, we brought this out, that, that Paul writes that Cretans are always what? Liars. They're always liars. There, there's a, there is an ancient evidence that suggests the Cretans regarding, regarded lying as culturally acceptable. I feel like we're in that culture today. And, and ancients even coined a term... Cretizo. You could hear the term Crete in there. This term came to mean to play the Cretan or to lie. 
Paul, from the outset, wants to show the guarantee of his ministry as well as the absolute promise and the hope of eternal life. And Paul wants to so, show just how secure the Christian hope he is as he's writing to this church or these churches. Paul has set his God, the non-lying, truthful God, in opposition to the entire Cretan culture and their lying little g-gods. And only one will win out. Only one's going to come be the victor of the day. Well, only one will hold up. Only one religion and morality will rule the day. Which one Cretans will you follow? Which one Titus and all you other ministers? Which one will you uphold as you preach the gospel? The words and the truth of the unlying God? Or will you acquiesce to the culture in Crete and walk and teach their flawed religion and morality? Which one are you going to follow? It's important to understand just this statement by itself, which God who cannot lie. When the Bible says God cannot lie, it means just that. God absolutely is incapable of lying. It cannot happen. This speaks of God's immutability. Immutability is the word of the day. It's, it's, it is a theological word and it simply means this. Simply known to be his unchanging essence, his unchanging existence, perfections, purposes and promises. God does not change. God causes change in His creation. Look at me. You can see the gray hairs upon my, my, my head and you can see the pounds that I pack on. You, we've changed. In fact, we've changed just since we've been here. Right? We've changed in, 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 with water masses. I'm drinking. Our cells, they're constantly, de they're constantly depleting and, and, and dividing themselves and stuff. We're constantly changing and God uses changing in His creation. That's what He uses while He interacts differently to different situations outside of Himself. He nonetheless does not change. God does not change within Himself. He cannot change. James 1.17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The sons of Jacob are thankful that he does not change. Because God does not change His purposes nor His faithfulness to His promises do not change. God does not waver nor does He hesitate on, in His commitment to His decrees or His promises. God is so unlike man who is moody and fickle and stressed out and wavers upon our promises. No, God is reliable not only because of His determination to fulfill His promises, but also because of His immutability allows no change within Him. If God changes, you have no God. Peter Sammons, he writes in his book, and I, I commend you to get it, is the forgotten attributes of God, God's nature and why it matters. He says this, he says that the immutability of God, it permeates Scripture so much that you could actually gather all of those texts and arrange them into four categories. First, His existence. Second, His perfections. Third, His purposes. And fourth, His promises. And it's those last two that I want to focus on really quickly. It's the latter two I want to draw the attention to. When we speak of the immutability of God, we can speak of it in the sense that one, God is unchanging in His purposes. Salmons writes this, God always acts in time and space according to His predetermined purposes. While God was not forced to make such plans, i.e. creation, or to make man in His own image, or to elect specific individuals unto salvation, he nonetheless fulfills his plans unwaveringly once they have been made. In other words, 
God does not change His mind. He has predetermined His purposes and they will not change. Neither will He change, nor any force will change it. Job chapter 42 verse 2, he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 19 verse 21, many plans are in the person's hearts, but the advice of the Yahweh will stand. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 24, Yahweh of armies has sworn saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened and just as I have promised, so it will stand. God's purposes and His plans, or you could say His decrees, they never alter. Nothing thwarts them. He never reverses course. There, ever, there never is a plan B. If God has purchased something, it has been decreed by God, and therefore it is utterly perfect and infallible, and it was made in perfect accordance with God's good pleasure, and nothing can alter it. God, He taunts the nations in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, when He says, For Yahweh of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is outstretched, and who will turn it back? And the answer is a resounding, absolutely no one. Second, and I think it's very closely linked to the first, is God is unchanging in His promises. Not only is God unchanging in His purposes, but He's unchanging in His promises. Think of it as His promises are expressions of His purposes. His promises are His expressions of His purposes. This speaks directly to our text today that God cannot lie. He has made a promise and He cannot lie, nor can He deceive. God cannot reveal something about Himself or His promises in one age and then another age uh, renege on those promises or renege on those decrees. He cannot do it. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19, God is not a man that He would lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do? Or has He spoken and will He not make it good? God cannot lie, for He is bound by His nature, which is absolute holiness, righteousness, and truth. Men may and they do lie, but God cannot. How can you know, how can I know for certain that God will accomplish what He has purposed in eternity past? How can we know that what God has stated in His Word will come to pass? Because God cannot lie. There is no deception within Him. God isn't subject to the same infirmities infirmities that you and I, that lead us into falsehood. Think about it. Think about this. When you and I, we promise something, there are two things that can happen. Sometimes we make a promise and those promises can't be fulfilled because we didn't plan on one thing happening. For example, perhaps I promised to go to a basketball game or a baseball game, but I got a flat tire on the way. So my promises, what happened? They didn't come to fruition. And I had to change my plans. That was something out of my control and it thwarted what? My promises that I had made to go to that, that, that basketball game or baseball game. It was out of my control, but I could not control that promise. And at the other time, we have to change our plans or renege on our promises because we can't fulfill our original intentions. For example, maybe I plan to run a marathon. Not going to happen anytime soon, but let's just say it happens and I train very hard and thereby couldn't compete or finish the race, or, or I didn't train very hard and I could not compete in that race. What happens? I, I controlled that. I promised that I could run in that marathon, but something I, I controlled not being able to run it because I did not train. Or I just promised it and I didn't do it to begin with. It was on me to do that. Or the other one was on something else outside my purview that I could not control. Either way, the promise gets broken. 
But that's the difference in the creator and the creation. The created. God cannot not fulfill his purposes. It is impossible. God cannot will or purpose that anything that is contrary to his nature and essence. And he cannot purpose something that he cannot bring to pass or even fail at accomplishing. It cannot happen. That includes his salvation purposes. They cannot fail. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Psalm chapter 115, Psalm 115, 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4, 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. Write this one down and go and study this one, but this is interesting. Speaks of God swearing by himself an oath that he will fulfill the promises that he has made. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. And in Hebrews 6, verse 17, 6, verse 17, said that there are two unchangeable promises or things that God cannot do. One is that he cannot lie when he makes a promise. And two, it is impossible for God to lie when he swears by himself to fulfill that promise. Not only has God promised, but he has promised an oath against himself to fulfill those promises. So if God has promised to save you, and God has sworn an oath that he will fulfill those promises, then there are two unchangeable things which he cannot lie, his promises and his oath. Note, I want you to see in our text, that the, note the God who cannot lie. When did he promise this purpose of eternal life? Paul says that God has promised this eternal life, what? Long ages ago, or as the LSB says, in eternity past, from all of eternity. This verse speaks of a promise God made concerning eternal life before let there be life was ever spoken. Before there was breath in man, God made this promise. Before the creation of the world, before the creation of the universe, God made a promise, an eternal promise. Theologians, they call it the decree of election. The decree of election, that being the free and sovereign choice of God, made in eternity past to set His love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves, but solely because of the good pleasure of His will to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. And I know that as I speak that and I preach that, there are probably some who are uncomfortable with that. But I am as uncomfortable with speaking that as the Bible is uncomfortable speaking that. And the Bible is replete with teaching that God has chosen from the foundations of the world those who shall be saved. It is His eternal purpose. It is His eternal decrees. Paul wrote into Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Anytime he mentions callings, it is an effectual calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from when? From all of eternity. This is why I say that Paul, he was committed to the eternal and unchangeable purposes of God. This is what Paul was committed to as a, as a minister. This eternal life, this salvation that we have was made in eternity past and cannot be annulled because we have a God who purposed this and made this promise who cannot lie. But I want you to think about it. Who had the promise ever been given to? Who was this given to? 
Remember, I said this was before let there be light was spoken. It wasn't a creature, for no creature had yet been formed. There was only one God. And this promise was an agreement among the members of the Godhead. There among the infinite, all-wise, all-knowing, all-righteous, all-holy, all-loving counsel of the Trinitarian Godhead was a binding pledge made between the Father and the Son regarding the salvation of the elect. The Father chose the elect as John so rightly taught last week. And he gave them to the Son to be his inheritance. The Son, he accepted the gift with the understanding that he would have to enter into the world, which we will be celebrating here in a few weeks. This entrance into the world, the incarnation. Why? It's not because some baby is laying in a manger and that we get Christmas presents. It is based upon an eternal decree that happened in eternity past that he must come and he must save sinful man in whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. That is why we celebrate Christmas because God must come. He must come and save his people and be a redeeming sacrifice for them. The son, he accepted this gift. And he entered into the world, becoming the God-man. And he purchased their salvation through his death. So what was promised by the Father and the Son in the eternity past was the salvation of the elect. Theologians, they call this the pactum salutis. The pactum salutis. Or simply you can say it is an agreement of salvation. Dr. John MacArthur, he rightly states, The plan of redemption for sinners did not come after men fell. But before man was ever created, the Father sowed His perfect love to the Son by promising Him a redeemed humanity who would serve and glorify Him forever. The Son's role was to be the sacrifice for the sins of the elect so that they could be redeemed and brought to glory. Before God provided the marvelous promise of forgiveness in heaven to sinful mankind, He had given a promise to His beloved Son. That is the promise of which Jesus reminded God the Father in his prayer upon our behalf, before he went to the cross, Father, I desire that you, they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see your glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus affirmed this promise about a year or so earlier when he publicly proclaimed, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. You could say it is the purpose of my Father. This is the promise of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. That is eternal life and eternal hope. Who is it that comes to Christ? Think about it. All that the Father gives to Christ, and it's that person who will not be cast out. That's the hope of eternal life. You can guarantee it. Take it to the bank. It is done. It is finished. Not a wish, not a I hope so, but I can count on that because my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and righteousness. And what's the purpose of the Father? What's His will? That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will what? have eternal life. That's the purpose of God the Father is that we may have eternal life. Everyone who looks to Christ will have eternal life. And he says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. What a purpose. What a promise for us today. All of this is done by God's infinite wisdom and his good counsel. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul writes, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God proclaimed before the ages to our glory. 
The Bible tells us that the Father in His infinite wisdom is gathering a bride for His Son throughout history. It was the Father's will to choose that bride in eternity past and give it to the Son as a gift chosen in eternity past. That's Ephesians chapter 1 through verse 4. That's what we read at the beginning of our, of our service tonight. Just as He chose us in Him before when? The foundation of the world. That's what Paul's speaking of. That would be that we would be what? Holy and blameless before Him. This is what we're predestined to be. And the Father in time, He draws it. The bride via the Holy Spirit. The bride comes, the Son receives, the Son keeps, and the Son raises to eternal glory. The end of the high priestly prayer, which I've already alluded to. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, again, there it is, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. I want you to know that your salvation, it's not about you. Your salvation, it's not about you. Your salvation, you know, you're wrapped up in the greatest love story ever designed. Your salvation is a part of an eternal decree that God set forth because He wanted to give a gift to His Son because He loved Him that much. That is what salvation is about. And it's the Son who had to come and redeem that gift because we fell and He was the one who came to make it right. We're called up in eternal covenant, a pactum salutis, that the two members of the Trinity have made between each other to demonstrate, get this, to demonstrate the profoundness and the extent of God's glory and His love. He, God the Father, loved us in the Son before the foundation of the world. He made a promise to the Son before the foundation of the world that He would bring about a redeemed humanity. And in history, He set His love on the elect and drew them to salvation, which was provided by His Son. John says in 1 John four nineteen that we love Him because what? That we, that, why? Because we, we love him because we loved him when, you know, at, at some point in our, in our lives and stuff, you know, we chose him and stuff. No, he says, why? we love him because he first loved us. That's why you love Christ today is because he loved you first. You can't out love the Savior. You can't out love the Father. John writes in 1 John chapter 2 verse 25 that this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Second Peter. 1-4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption. This, this is in the world by lust. God is the promiser and in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 1-20 says, for as many as are the promises of God in him, that's Christ, they are a yes. God's promises are made in Jesus Christ. Jesus is in direct accord with God's will while on earth promised in John chapter 3 verse 14 that as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Christ's promises are in full compliance and full agreement with God's promises and purposes. All of God's blessings, all of God's promises of blessings and peace and joy and love and goodness and purpose and fellowship and forgiveness and strength and hope, a kingdom, heaven, salvation, sanctification, glorification. Everything that God has promised 
is made possible in Christ. He is the yes to all of God's promises. It is in Christ that all of God's eternal and unchangeable purposes come to fruition. That's why we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.14, we always triumph in Christ. Not, no, no matter what the world does to us, we always triumph in Christ. He is the one who brings us into eternal life and it is He who keeps us. And what's the eternal goal? I've already read it. Romans 8, 28, for those whom he foreknew, there's the eternal decree, election, he also predestined. I believe in predestined because it's in the Bible. It says it. He predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. He's bringing a people to himself so that we will be purified and we will be like him. And that's our eternal hope. That's the hope that we have. That's eternal life. That's what Jesus said in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that we may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Such a great theological statement that we see here in this opening salutation. But let us not forget the reason that Paul is writing this. He's anchoring his apostolic authority in the veracity and the sovereign will of the one truthful and righteous God. This is Paul's mission. This is his commitment as a slave of God and an apostle to Jesus Christ that he teaches and he exhorts and he strengthens God's people in their faith in the knowledge that accords with godliness and that in return, get this, anchors their souls in the eternal hope, in eternal life that has been promised to them by the unchanging, unlying, immutable, all-righteous, all-holy, all-wise, all-loving God. That is his job and his commitment. Paul's goal in his ministry is to ultimately preach Christ and Him crucified, to glorify God in all that he does and all that he says, all that he teaches, all that he preaches. His commitment is to the truth, to the manifestation of the truth about this eternal plan that God has set. It was designed, given as a promise to the Lord and then being fulfilled in all eternity and being given back to God in reciprocity. Our life is in Christ, folks. It's Christ that's in us. It's Christ that purifies us. It's Christ that gives us hope. It's Christ that comes and has saved us. Paul, this is kind of our theme statement for our church, I think, one of them. We got many, but one of them. This is, to, this is a buddy of mine. Well, I'll read it. First Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that's Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Having made peace through the blood of His Christ, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of this gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I of which Paul was made minister. Paul's master was the primary missionary sent to this planet for its redemption and to do the Father's bidding. And Paul followed suit, for he served his master well. Paul was a minister of the gospel and an ambassador for Christ, evangelizing the law, strengthening men and women in their faith, and ultimately firmly establishing disciples in their steadfast hope of eternal life, purposed by God in eternity past, promised in His Word, and brought to fruition by the life and death of Jesus Christ. 
And here's a good summary statement of Paul. A brother Nate, my brother Nate Glomsky, who's out in uh, California right now, he, this is what he hammered home in my head. Colossians 1.28, this is a continuation. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Here's the Hena clause. So that we may present every man complete in Christ for this purpose. Also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. That is the job of each and every one of us. That's the job of the elders. That's the job of the leadership is that we see the fullness of Christ come to fruition in all God's people. You say, well, Blake, well, then what do I have to do with this? What responsibility do I have? Does God just reach down and zap us? You're saved. Does God just zap you and say, your salvation has now happened? How does salvation happen? I'm going to leave you with this text, and we're going to come back to it next week in part two. James 1.18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of His truth. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of His truth. I want you to think about that statement. And I heard a pastor, a friend of mine, say this, the unchanging God uses a constantly changing creation to accomplish His unchanging will and purpose. And the unchanging God uses a constantly changing creation to accomplish His unchanging will and His purpose. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of our God and Savior. That's where I'm going to leave it, our text tonight. It's more to come as we look to Paul, the committed slave and apostle. But very quickly before we go, I want to give you some assurances from our text. Just a couple of assurances that we can get, I think, from our text this evening. Because God does not lie, and all His promises, all His I wills come to fruition. Every last one of them. We must take His word seriously. And when He says in Isaiah chapter 13, 11, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. God has promised a day when He will punish all sin where He will enact His holy and righteous wrath upon the ungodly, on those who hate Him, on those who are outside of Christ. There's coming a day when we will receive that, that those ungodly people, they will receive their just recompense, and those who are outside of Christ, they'll not be able to escape it. And, and instead of having the hope of eternal life, the, the only hope is, is no hope at all. For, for God has promised an eternal death to all who physically die while outside of Christ and being spiritually dead. Those who die in unbelief will face the lake of fire forever where the worm never dies. And there they will receive the full wrath of God for all of eternity. And He has promised this in His Word. But God has also promised that if you turn from your sin, if you repudiate all that you are and all that you were and all that you love and you turn away from a life of pursuing sin and you trust in Christ alone for righteousness, He promises that He will forgive you. 
He, he, he will have treated Christ on the cross as if Christ lived your life and He will then treat you justly and legally and righteously as if you had lived Christ's life, His perfect life and His righteousness. And you can be saved to know that God you, that, that the God you were created to love and enjoy. You can have the fullness of joy, the eternal pleasures that are at the Father's right hand in heaven and begin even now because eternal life is to know God. You can have that today. That is promised today. He calls you to repent and believe. If you don't heed His promises, that He'll save you, you will see the other promise come to fruition. That is not a promise you'll want to see. Second, having a God that does not change it's beneficial and comforting to us as believers. What comfort it would it be to pray to a God like a chameleon that changed colors every day, every moment. We as finite, fickle, peculiar human beings clearly need a God who is in control of this world and remains faithful to His promises. We have a reliable God. We have a God who makes promises and He keeps them, never ever abandoning those promises that He's made, never veering off course from the purposes that He set forth in eternity past. Time and time again, God has shown Himself faithful in my life and in your life. The grandest proof of that being the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was promised before the foundation of the world. This one act alone is the clearest and the surest evidence that God cannot possibly ever lie. This should give us great comfort. Once we accept our insignificance as creatures and we see God's grace manifest in Christ, we can trust the God who has saved us. Stephen Sharnock says, The nearer we come to God, the more stability we shall have in ourselves. Divine stability. Have you found Him to be true? Moreover, have you ever found Him not to be true? You've been to Him. And many times in trials, has He ever broken His promises? Through the trials and fires, did He ever leave you? You've cried out to Him in times of trouble, times of persecution. Did He ever fail to deliver you? Think back to the times that God has never let you down and He has stood with you and beheld you. For He is a God that is reliable and gives us an eternal hope. And finally, the final assurance I give you today is because God is faithful to His promises and His purposes and that they're eternal and His purposes, they do not change. No one, no thing can take away your eternal life. No one can destroy your faith because your faith may lack. Put another way, our security is, is not rooted in what you have willed to do, but it is rooted and grounded in the nature of God and His character. And He is sovereign and powerful and the will of man cannot stop Him. God's immutability is the rock on which His covenantal promises are founded. You as a creature are constantly changing, never, never not changing, except for one thing. One thing never changes you as a believer, and that is your salvation. It cannot change, for it is rooted and grounded in the promises of God. Your salvation is all of God, it has nothing to do with you, for it is rooted and grounded in His purpose and the will and the eternal decree of the eternal and unchanging God. He has determined whom He will save, how He will save, when He will save them. He has determined that He will save them. He hasn't left salvation up to the wicked or rebellious and the depraved will of man, thank God. J.I. Packer summarized it in a pithy statement, God saves sinners. And our text today, along with all the other texts that we presented, preserve the truth that salvation is God's work from first unto last. One final quote from Stephen Sharnock. He says, The covenant of grace doth not run. I will be your God if you will be my people. But 
quote, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God puts a condition to his covenant of grace, the condition of faith, and he resolves to work the condition in the hearts of the elect. And therefore, believers have two immutable pillars for their support. And once those who understand that God's love for them and desire for their salvation originates in eternity past and continues through eternity future, they will be compelled to love Him and serve Him all the more faithfully. They will do this not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. A person captured by the love of Jesus will love Him back, not because He has to, not because He has to, but because He wants to. He saved us so that we might serve Him and be like Him. And let's do just that as Grace Bible Church. God's immutability is a wonderful attribute. And there is no hope without it. Let's pray. Father God, we sat before you today and we have tasted and we have seen the true, immutable, holy, all-righteous God. We have no excuse today. We have no excuse to be outside of you for we've heard the gospel. We have no excuse to be people who are called to be purified because we have heard your word, command it. We have been saved, not as a hell escape or a fire escape from hell, but we have saved to be like your bride, to be like Christ, to be purified. Father, I pray for Grace Bible Church. I pray that you help us to heed these words, to, to be rooted and grounded in, in just the immutability of God and understand your attributes. They're so, it's so weighty a thing. What a marvelous thing it is to know that your purposes and promises, they never change. They can't change. Help us to be able to implant these truths in our lives. I pray for the salvation of the lost. I pray that they never see your purposes and promises come to fruition as those outside of Christ. What a horrible day. What a horrible eternity. Save them, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.